All right, we're going to get started in about 30 seconds. Um, and uh, looking forward to going through this, a lot of material, um, very controversial subject matter. Um, so I think we'll have some good lively discussion. We can have some question and answer at the end of different sessions. Um, and I think he told me I have to say my name and the, and the um, <laughs> title, I guess for the recording. I hope, I don't know where they went because I want to make sure I'm doing this right. Um, I don't know if it records into this or this. I'm assuming it's into this. All right, I don't see the guy, so I guess we'll just get started. Hope it doesn't not record. Um, all right, so I am Eric Walsh. Um, uh, I'm a physician um, and preacher, pastor sometimes. Um, and uh, I'm very glad to be back at GYC. Our, our series for the next day, two days is Prophecy and Social Justice. And what you're going to find is that the move of social justice is in prophecy. You're going to see that these controversial issues, um, as they come up, are planned to come up that way. Um, and that if the church is not careful, these issues will divide the church and subvert um, the loud cry and even prevent, or delay, I should say, the latter rain from falling. And that's why these are such important issues. That's why the church is going to have to grapple with them. Um, um, you know, if you've got to stay with it for the whole ride, there are a lot of twists and turns. Um, I'm going to say some things that you're going to probably think no one would ever say, um, but that's really where we are. Uh, so if you follow this all the way through, um, you're going to get some, some, some really high level stuff. One of the, one of my jobs, I have several, my parents are Jamaican, um, so, <laughs> um, is that I teach at, um, actually one of the Catholic universities. Um, graduate nursing students, and I teach all the public health policy, uh, social policy, public policy classes, uh, two or three of them, um, to DNP students and masters in uh, nursing students. Um, and these are a lot of the topics I have to cover, except it's very different when you cover it in a university, as we're going to talk about over the next two days. The universities, as you probably have seen in the news, have become bastions of places where free speech is actually not very much allowed. Ironically, where you would want kids to think critically and hear all sides of an issue, um, that's not necessarily how it goes on many of our U.S. campuses, um, which is part of this movement. It is a way to change the way people think, specifically to change the way young people think, so that you change the way a nation not only thinks, but the direction of the entire nation and thus the world. Um, and so we as Seventh-day Adventists have a unique message, a challenging message, one that uh, is precluded by the fact that if you stand for what we stand for, believe what we believe, persecution is the natural result. The natural result. This brother asked me if I'm going to give my testimony about what happened to me on some of these issues, and I'm not. Um, but I will weave it in a little bit to, uh, to make some points, because I experienced uh, this firsthand, what um, social justice does, um, and, and when, it is, um, when it is used by the enemy. And I'm going to show you that this issue started at the very beginning. Literally at the dawn of, of, of the earth's history, this is the issue Satan brought up. And that's one of the ways he was able to have Adam and Eve fall. So let's start. Let's, let's have a, uh, let me read, actually, let me read the scripture and then we'll pray. I'm going to read from Psalms 82, uh, verses 1 through 5. It says, God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Defend the poor and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. Our message is... Uh, our series is Prophecy and Social Justice, and our first uh, installment is The Need for Justice. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to study these critical last day issues. Once again, Lord, I ask that you just make me a nail on the wall. And Lord, upon that nail, I ask that you hang a portrait of Jesus Christ. I need not be seen or heard. And these are very, very shark-infested waters that we're about to walk into to, to deal with, Lord. So we're asking for an extra portion of, an extra outpouring and a portion of your Holy Spirit. 
Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would lead us into all truth. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So here we go. I'll go back. I may not mention the verse again, so I do want to go over the scripture reading. One of the key principles and where we start today is that God is a God of justice. And I'm going to show you Ellen White between today and tomorrow, some powerful texts and passages from Ellen White on this issue. God is a God of justice and God is a God of action on the issue of justice. And that's why David says God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? In other words, God judges correctly. Why would you be so unfair? Why would you not do so as well? Then he gives a prescription that is actually repeated throughout the scripture. Number one, defend the poor and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor, uh, the poor and needy, rid them out of the hand of the wicked. Did you see that? Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness, and all the foundations of the earth are out of course. Now, our family worship, we've been going through the minor prophets. And what is shocking as you study the minor prophets is how many times in all of the minor prophets it is reiterated the idea that Judah, uh, mostly in the minor prophets, but also Israel, they literally created unequal, untenable societies for the poor, for the widowed. God judged them because of that. The Babylonian captivity, after the Assyrians took Israel, uh, the nation of Israel, the Babylonian captivity is a direct result of their inability to create a fair and honorable society. Never forget that. That's how God dealt with his own people on this issue. That's why, a big reason as to why that happened. So, I want to go back to the book of Genesis. So we're going to go back um, to the beginning, um, which is where almost everything goes back to if you study it. You can always start in Genesis and end in Revelation on any issue. And that's what we're going to do as we go through this. So let's, let's look at um, Genesis. Genesis 4.8. We're speaking to God's justice now. We're going to go back to the Garden of Eden in, the, in, one, of the, in one of the following um, presentations. Now somebody tell me, what time does this session end? Because I, I don't want to go over. 10.40, okay. All right, so Genesis 4.8 says this. And Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. I won't go into the backstory. You all know they brought different things before God. Cain's big mistake was he thought that he could bring whatever he wanted, right? If this is what I produced. Cain represents righteousness by works. Abel represents righteousness by faith. And because those who practice righteousness by works cannot stand those who exist in righteousness by faith, he rose up against him and slew him. You get that? That's a pretty powerful statement. And here's why that's relevant. It is literally the two spirits that follow throughout the earth after that. Right? Those are the two spirits. And to this day, when you even look at what's going to happen in the end times, righteousness by faith is a key component of what's going to happen. That's why the story is important. But we jump in where Cain talked with his brother Abel, rose up against him and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, listen, I don't know where my brother is. Am I responsible for my brother? Why is it my responsibility? Now, there's a few things that Cain does here. He's clearly the first murderer in the Bible. Amen. He's also one of the first liars. He knew exactly where his brother was. And he knew he had a responsibility to his brother, but he killed his brother. Now, and he said, what hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood cries unto me from the ground. This is uh, an allegorical stance. The scripture takes all the way through, even in the book of Revelation from under the altar. You can hear the voice of the martyrs crying out. It's not that his blood literally cried out or like, like you know, no, Abel's not in heaven talking to God. It is because God sees all. He knows all. Verse 11. And now thou art cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. So then God says, listen, to be fair, to be just, Cain, you killed your brother. 
you are now cursed. Now, what's interesting is, <clears throat> even though later on in the Old Testament, uh, it will say an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, that isn't what God does, is it? God curses him, he doesn't kill him. And he could have easily done that, right? Um, so, when you till the ground, look at the curse he gives him. It shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond thou shalt be in the earth. You, you brought vegetables to me as an offering, and you killed your brother because I wouldn't accept it. So from now on, you're going to never be able to grow like you did before. And because of that, you'll never be able to put down roots. You're going to have to travel and be nomadic because of what you did to your brother. Your life, you took his life. God said, I will take your livelihood. Now watch this. Here's where the story gets fascinating to me. We're talking about social justice. Verse 13. Cain's response isn't, Lord, I'm sorry. You know, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have killed my brother. I shouldn't have lied. I shouldn't have been jealous. I shouldn't have brought the wrong offering. His response is, my punishment is greater than I can bear. That's his response. He killed his brother. His, his punishment is that he won't be able to get broccoli so easily now. Right? His tomatoes won't grow well. And the squirrels, like they do at our house, the chipmunks are going to eat the blueberries. Right? He, he, the ground is not going to cooperate with him anymore. And here, he's like, oh, this, ugh, woe is me. This is too much. Fundamentally, so he's going to get some controversial stuff. This is the spirit of this generation. The spirit of this generation is, it's too much. I can't, you know, what, what's happening to me is more than I can bear. It's too much. There's no personal responsibility. Everybody, everything that happens is someone else's fault. And our kids are being indoctrinated this way. And in indoctrinating them this way, some terrible things are happening. Look at what he says. Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid, and I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth, and it shall come to pass that everyone that finds me shall slay me. Now, what's ridiculous about that statement? He killed his brother, but can everybody kill you? Only one person can actually kill you. Everybody can't kill you. You know, he died once. This is his, you know, his, his ugh, you know, flopping around drama. Everybody can't kill him. You can only die one time. But he's trying to, I mean, and this spirit that, hey, it's, it's everybody else. I'm on the hit list. God, you got to stand up and do something. So watch this. Verse 15. And the Lord said unto him, now look at God's justice. And the Lord said unto him, therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, he put a mark on him. He says, and said, therefore, whosoever shall slay Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him. How many times? Sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should what? Look at God. I hope you get this. Why would God so early in earth's history give Cain this kind of a pass? God was not trying to set up a world where the answer to one, in, one injustice is another injustice. He was, he, this was early. You got to remember when it is. Now, it's different when there's a theocracy and Israel has a king and God has given these laws or even before they get a king and God's given these laws to Moses. It's a very different situation. This is an, and that's why some people say, well, God, is, the Bible doesn't it contradict itself. You got to understand the context. This is very early in Earth's history. There are no kingdoms and nations yet. No laws. And God is trying to make the point for all eternity that, in fact, although Cain is in the dead wrong, I will still impute mercy. In fact, so much so that this is why the scripture reads, God says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And let me tell you something, you'll live a lot longer when you learn that those who have done you wrong are worthy of forgiveness. A lot of people that hold on to the anger of what was done to them. I'm going to give you my testimony, not that testimony. You got a whole other testimony. You're in for a surprise. Um, uh, about how I got into black nationalism and radicalism. 
and why that is so dangerous and how God brought me out of it. But that's not this session. He said, look, lest any finding him should kill him. And here's where it gets interesting. God imparts this mercy upon Cain and look at what Cain does. The Bible says, and Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. Now that doesn't, that's not as simply means that Cain was having this conversation with God and then Cain left and went away from God. It means he left from being in God's presence. I hope you guys are getting this. It means he left from wanting to affiliate and associate with God. This is why later on, when the story of the flood comes, it says, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were fair and went after them. Who were the daughters? Of, some people say the sons of God were the angels and the daughters of men were the... No, it's this story right here in great part. It is literally that Cain went away and created a whole nother group of people that were constantly in rebellion against God. And when the two groups, Seth's descendants and Cain's descendants, came back together, that's when the trouble is outlined in the book of Genesis. But I say all of that to tell you that God is a God of justice. He did not let Cain get away with what he did. That's really important, right? Cain didn't just walk off and not have to suffer any consequences. Cain was going to have a difficult life. But how different... Would Cain's life have been, because we're going to talk about Judas in another one of the sessions, how different would Cain's life have been if instead of leaving God's presence unrepentant, he had repented and gone towards God? We blame Eve and Adam, but most people blame Eve more than Adam, even though I blame Adam more than Eve, right? We blame Eve and Adam for bringing sin into the world. No one ever stops to think about Cain's contribution. Cain had the ability here to stop the seed of sin in its tracks. If he had just repented and gone towards God. Let me tell you, it's a lesson for us today. There are many people who stay away from God because they think the sin they committed is too great for God to deal with them. Too great for God to forgive them. The lesson here from Cain is, don't, when you have messed up, the worst thing you can do is to leave the presence of God. Stop going to church. Stop reading your Bible. Right? Just say, you know what? Forget it. Throw up your hands and go into the far country. All right. Proverbs 19 says this. He that, uh, Proverbs 19, 70 says that he that pity, uh, he that hath pity upon the poor lends unto the Lord and that which he hath given will he pay him again. So the Bible gives us this, this example that when you live in a world of inequity, God Cain was spiritually poor. God was willing to give to Cain. We are to give to the physically, financially, spiritually poor. That is literally our mission. That is the three angels' messages, as we'll see. Here's what Ellen White says. A call to stand, page 60. She says, pure religion and undefiled before the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world, Good deeds are the fruit that Christ requires us to bear. Kind words, deeds and of benevolence, of tender regard for the poor, the needy, the afflicted. When the hearts sympathize with the hearts burdened with discouragement and grief, when the hand dispenses to the needy, when the naked are clothed, the stranger made welcome to, to a seat in your parlor and a place in your heart, angels are coming very near and an, and an answering strain is responded to in heaven. Powerful, isn't that? People ask me what, you know, this is, you know, spoiler alert, this is, our, this is the, se- the session for tomorrow. We'll go in deeper detail. Of what are churches, what should we be doing in the age of social justice? And people are marching up and down the streets for Black Lives Matter. Now they're marching up and down that Palestine should be free. And all of these protests uh, sometimes turn violent. What is the church supposed to do? Some say, well, should the church ignore all of this? No. The church should be wise enough to deal with the root problems. Because the world is dealing with the superficial aspects of it, as we're going to see. And the reason social justice is really just a tool of the world to advance its cause is because the world will not and cannot address the real issue. Uh, Somebody missed that. They cannot address the real issue. 
And for that reason, this thing will only continue to spiral out of control. Now, what makes it, what's interesting is, um, I was, I, uh, we went across the street, our neighbors across the street are Catholic. Um, uh, our, the, the father in the home died of cancer this year. Really sad, lovely people. Um, so we went over on, on Christmas Eve or something just to give them some gifts. We've, we've shared books and stuff with them and DVDs and done things with them. Um, and, the, and, and the lady's brother was there. And he's a world-class chef. He's telling me all these restaurants in Boston that he's, that he's, that he's worked in and stuff. And, but he said 10 years ago, he finally gave up drinking. And he's got many an ailment because of years of alcoholism. And he said, he said, when I finally gave up alcohol, I began to live. And you know what he did? He stopped working at fancy restaurants. He works for the homeless in Boston. Literally, there's a homeless shelter on the north shore of Boston that has a world-class chef that makes them their food all week. And you know what he said? That is one of the big parts of his recovery. Serving others is literally, he says literally some of the best food served in all the bucket. They get all kinds of fancy, expensive food donated. If they can't, you know, if it's going to spoil the grocery stores, give it to them. And it's being done. He said, it's part of my recovery. One of the reasons that we do justice and do right is because it is a part of our recovery from sin. I do, and listen, I, you know, I'm a physician, I, I travel all over the world and speak. And you know what on Sundays when I'm home I do? I go to our church to a nursing home with 15 to 20 elderly sick people or people in rehab with amputations and I preach and I lead service. 15 people. And you know why I do it? I do it because it's part of my recovery. And there's a lot more that we try to do, but this is a big part of it. It's for us and not just for them. Here's what Ellen White says. She says, on page 60, continue to call to stand apart. Every act of justice, mercy, and benevolence makes melody in heaven. I hope you get that. The Father from his throne beholds those who do these acts of mercy and numbers them with his most precious treasures. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts. In that day when I make up my jewels, every merciful act to the needy, the suffering is regarded as though done to Jesus. When you succor the poor, sympathize with the afflicted and oppressed, and befriend the orphan, you bring yourselves into a closer relationship to Jesus. And for that reason, we have to know that injustice really does exist. How we address it, I think, is key. But I'm going to give you some, give you, we're going to spend some time just looking at that now. So here's some interesting statistics. I love public health. So I love stats. Um, the richest 10% of people in the world own 76% of the world's wealth. The middle 40% of people own 22% of the world's wealth. And the poorest 50% of people own 2% of the world's wealth. What does that mean? So people, people get mad. I've seen Anderson Cooper or, or somebody on his show once um, kind of deriding the statement from Jesus. During the, I think it was during the, the riots after um, uh, George Floyd um, died. Um, and they, one, of, one of them was saying you know, they, that we as Christians misuse the phrase of Jesus where he says, the poor you shall have with you always. Right? And they said, this is, you know, that's not, one guy was like, this is really not what Jesus meant. Blah, blah, blah. I think that's what he meant. And I'll tell you why I know that's why he meant. Because that's what's happened. I want you to understand the world has never been without poor. And up until, up until very recently, the world has never been without slaves. In fact, the world has never been without slaves. And what I mean by that is officially sanctioned by governments. Some of the last countries to abolish slavery did so uh, last century. The world has always been a place of inequity. Why? Because when sin entered the world, Satan understood that he could, destroy, and, this, and we're going to talk about this in one of the lectures, fractionalize people, he can better control people. Right? If he makes a Taylor Swift and a Beyonce, he can control millions of girls with just two people. I shouldn't say control. He can influence millions of girls with just two people. 
right? Satan understands numbers. He's outnumbered. When he was cast out of heaven, for every angel that is now a demon he took with him, two of them stayed with God. He has been outnumbered from the beginning. And if you want to understand spiritual warfare, you've got to understand that you are dealing with an outnumbered foe. And once you understand that, you're not so afraid. Because you understand that Satan knows he is in a losing battle. As much as he lies about it, he knows it. And so he uses this, right? If you can bring all these people into poverty, you can make them destitute, make them not think about heavenly things, make them just think about survival. You make some people filthy rich. And once you're filthy rich, you no longer need God. We've seen this across Europe, Canada, Australia. When I traveled to Australia and South Africa, I see, you know, over the years I've been traveling to those places, I see a change, right? Predominantly, the white, wealthy people in these countries have shifted slowly and surely away from God. You know, I live in Connecticut, which was once a solidly Christian state. I mean, I live in New England where literally people fled Europe to establish religious freedom. And I'm telling you, many of the people there now don't want to hear anything about God. And we've seen that happen in Europe. Europe is, is even ahead of us. And we're going to talk more about that when we talk about the French Revolution and its effects on us. All right. So here it is. This is um, inequity, inequality by income. Just, just to show you some interesting facts here. You know, you can see. And here's what's interesting. You see how deep it is in America, how dark our color is there? The United States, you'd think, would, would do better. Europe does better. Now, Part of that is if you have a country that has more socialistic policies. America depends on where in the country you are. If you live in Connecticut or California, there's a lot more you know, like money given out to the poor. You live in other parts of the country, there's not. Uh, but you can see that parts, the parts of the world that are red, you'll see that you'll go places and people are living filthy, filthy rich. I mean, you know, my family's Jamaican. You go to Jamaica and there are people living up in red hills and big mansions. And then you have other people with zinc uh, roof huts, basically. Right. There's a big difference between the rich and the poor. Now, ironically, what I found in those countries where God is introduced, the poor will hold on to God. Listen, the most the most some of the most committed Christians I've ever run into, I've run into in sub-Saharan Africa, in India. We just got back from India recently uh, in in um, in Jamaica, in Haiti. I mean, some very serious Christians you've run into in some of those countries, Eastern Europe. Poor in Western Europe. Christians are stronger in Eastern Europe than in Western Europe. So the poverty of, of money often leads to the riches of faith. Right? Interesting, interesting thing. So you can see here this difference. Now, how did all of this happen? So I'm, I want to deal with international, global aspects of this. So this, this is a book by Alex Gladstein, Hidden Repression, How the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, and the World Bank Sell Exploitation as Development. Now, when I, when I first, I was teaching at the University of California in Irvine um, on the side, a public health class to graduate students, and I, and, I, and, I, and I started to really look at the IMF and the World Bank. And then I ran across this documentary on Jamaica. It's called Life and Debt. And if you know anybody that's Jamaican, when Jamaicans don't say death. A lot of times the way the accent works out, it, it comes out debt. So this is a play on words, life and debt, right? Um, and so what the documentary shows you is that literally, I want you to get this, and systematically, the poor nations of the world are being held poor, not because the people are bad people or lazy people or they don't have resources. The opposite is true. Instead, it is because there are policies put in place that started after World War II to keep them poor. And they're done by the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. I'm going to give you a couple quick examples. And you can, if you ever want to see Stephanie Black's documentary, you can, you can see this. And I'll use Jamaica as the example. And I'll use some of our U.S. presidents to make the point. Bill Clinton, liberal, Democrat president, is the one who actually took the Jamaican banana growers to international court on behalf of Chiquita and Dole. Now, Chiquita and Dole, as you guys probably know now, they probably own 99% of the world banana market. But at the time, they were at like 95 or 94% of the world banana market. And because they didn't have that last sliver, and it was only because the British Isles, the United Kingdom, because Jamaica was a former colony, in order to kind of like help out their former colony, they had an exclusive right that, that UK, the UK, if you've ever been to England, they eat a lot of bananas. 
I figure it's because they can't grow bananas up there. Um, they, and so they shipped bananas up from Jamaica, and they had a whole big banana industry that flourished. Even the song, Dale, Dale, Daylight, Come On Me. That's what they used to sing in the fields. People could put their kids through college growing bananas in Jamaica, working in the banana fields. When Bill Clinton took them to court, he, he won. Jamaica lost its monopoly on selling bananas to Great Britain, and the entire banana industry was wiped out. The documentary shows you in Honduras and Nicaragua, plantations where Chiquita and Dole are, have people working on the plantations at gunpoint, being beaten when they don't do what they're supposed to do, so that their cost of growing the banana was a fraction of the cost it was in Jamaica. Church, this is the injustice spoken of in Revelation chapter 18. The Babylonian system that will collapse because they, of how Babylon controlled and did things. They, they did the same thing. America took powdered milk, made it and subsidized it with our tax dollars, sent it to Jamaica. And the, cheap, the powdered milk was so cheap, the people in Jamaica, being poor, started to buy the powdered milk for their children rather than cow's milk. Guess what happened to the dairy industry in Jamaica? Wiped out. Did the same thing with rice in Haiti. People started saying, look, the Haitians, are eating, back when they were eating dirt pies after the Papa Doc's regime, oh, they're doing all this stuff in Haiti, how terrible it is. Nobody told you that it was because we were sending subsidized food, literally taking your and I tax dollars, making it so that the food is less than it costs to grow, and sending it to a poor country where the people are by default going to buy what's, what's less expensive, and then annihilating that market, and then, of course, raising the prices once the market's annihilated. Have you heard the stories of how some of the baby formula companies went into Africa and literally handed out baby formula to try and increase their world market share? And when they handed out the baby formula, the women stopped breastfeeding. And then after so many months, they, stopped, they all of a sudden said, okay, now you got to buy the baby formula? And babies died? What I'm telling you is that you, we act because of sin and greed, and Spirit of Prophecy in the Scripture speaks to this, because of these things, these things will happen. And let me tell you something. It, it's not just, it, you know, I'll give a lot of examples from poor, poor darker-skinned countries. But the truth of the matter is, right here in America, if you go to the rural south, a lot of the same stuff is actually happening. In predominantly white parts of the south, you go into Appalachia. I used to work in Alabama, and I used to work out in a place called Widawi, Alabama. And I remember I got lost and wound up in a trailer park in Widawi, Alabama. There's poverty. And you know what? There's no grocery stores there either like there are in big cities. There's Piggly Wigglies sometimes and, and a lot of gas stations that sell chicken. I don't know what in the world a gas station has business doing selling fried chicken. I was moonlighting in the emergency room down there in Wadawi, and you know, all of a sudden, all these people start coming in with nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, sick, doubled over, and I'm like just one after the other. And I said, "What in the world?" So then I, said, I started taking, you know, and talking to everybody, like, "Oh, we ate chicken. Where'd you get it from? The gas station." <laughs> so even if you're not vegetarian, let me give you a piece of advice: don't eat chicken from the gas station. <laughs> all right, so let's move home a little closer. You come closer to home, I show this in a lot of my talks, it is one of the most interesting things. Does anybody know what city that is? What train, this is a train system for one of the U.S. cities. Not Portland, not Chicago, it's Washington, D.C. See, I, I gave it away, I hinted with Disparity City, see, D.C.? Uh, and so... When you look at this, I'm, and I'm going to show you how serious this is and why our church uniquely has the ability to address these issues, uniquely because of our health message. Now watch this. This is the southeast section of D.C. This is back when Ronald Reagan was president. People were selling crack near the White House. That, this was, it's near the Capitol, but it is one of the, uh, traditionally one of the poorest, roughest neighborhoods in all of America. I remember when my cousin was at Howard University and we were hanging out late at night and we were driving through these neighborhoods. I remember seeing like 13, 14 year olds armed to the teeth walking the streets, like just little kids. I was like, yeah, yeah I want to finish uh, school. You might want to get us out of here, right? And then if you come all the way out here to Maryland at the Shady Grove Station on the whole other end, this is a very wealthy. This is where all of the, these, um, a lot of the politicians live, government workers, a lot of the lobbyists live. 
right? If you, you want to understand fairness, you got to understand what the lobbyists do, right? So here's the, here's the stats. With each mile you travel from the Capitol Heights Station, which is in the middle of Southeast DC, life expectancy increases by about a year and a half as you travel, each mile you travel towards the Shady Grove Station in Maryland. Isn't that powerful? Now watch this. The average suburbanite near the Shady Grove Station will live 20 years longer than the typical city dweller around Capitol Heights. So what does this, right? Now, obviously, Shady Grove is going to be a lot, it's going to be a wider community. Um, uh, um, if you go to the southeast D.C. Capitol, it's going to be a more black community, now black and Latino community. How does this happen? In the wealthiest country in the world, how do you have these gradients of life expectancy? Here is the crux of why you have to discuss this and why our churches need to be all over it and why we need massive reform in our churches. I'll give you all another spoiler alert. Shark waters now. We have to do away with a two-tiered conference system. I would, uh, some people have crucified me for saying it. But the truth of the matter is, we have got to be unified if we're going to conquer what the devil is doing. Right? And I'm going to show you why it's so important that we really move back. We step away from what the world is telling us and focus on what God is telling us. Right? That's a tough thing for a lot of reasons, but I'm going to show you why. So... Look at this. If you look at the different zip codes, this is in California. If you look at life expectancy, I think that's like in South Central or Compton there. It's 73 years. You go out to like, I think the other one is Beverly Hills. It goes up to 88 or somewhere, some other wealthy part of Southern California. It's every city. It's Atlanta. I can draw the lines and show you how Atlanta does the same thing. It's Detroit. I can show you how in Detroit it's the same thing. It's Chicago. You do the same thing. And you notice, you notice that near the water is often the better place to live. Um, New Jersey, same thing. Philadelphia, same thing. I mean, and I'm not taking the time to show you all the gradients, but they're there. You can see that any city you live in, what matters is not your genetic code, it's your zip code. Once you get that, you start to get why the work of social justice is an important work. But again, the world can't address some of the core issues right so it's a we are it's tough for us as a church because the world doesn't necessarily even want our answers this is why the spirit of prophecy says that the right arm of the gospel is going to be the health message because when that is going to be the only thing people are going to be like yeah okay I'll, I'll you know I'll listen now Let's, let's use African-Americans as an example. African-American health, African-Americans are 50% more likely to have heart disease than white people, 40% more likely to die at an early age from any cause. 19% could not afford to see a doctor, so there's a big gradient of difference there. Zip code, not the genetic code, whether dubbed uh, desert or swamp, it is increasingly clear that your zip code, not your genetic code, is the best predictor of health and longevity. That's what does it. And once you understand that, you understand some key public health terms that they throw around, like the built environment, right? You, you know, if you, if you do, uh, you know, what is, where do you live? Is it walkable? Do you have good grocery stores? Like where we live, we got, we got multiple Whole Foods to choose from. Remember, there's so, there's so much grocery stores. I haven't even been to all the grocery stores in our town, right? Now, when I was growing up, and I went, you go into, like one of my friends grew up in Compton, they would drive 35 minutes to the grocery store. Because there were no good grocery stores in their neighborhoods, right? The environment, are there playgrounds that are safe? Do your kids have after-school programs where they can play that are safe? What is the quality of education? These are called the social determinants of health. What kind of jobs do people have? All these things determine health. It's not just whether or not you eat veggie food. It has everything to do with all of these different things, right? I have slides to show if you live in a neighborhood where fewer people have graduated from high school, the chance of homicide is like double in a neighborhood where like everybody has a high school diploma. Education matters. It all matters. And so when you look at these numbers, <clears throat> this is one I love to show. When I was working in the health department in Pasadena, Los Angeles County Health Department put this out, and I use it to this day. If you are born and raised in Los Angeles County and you want a long life, you need to be born in a, an Asian woman. Because Asian women will live almost 87 years, longer than everybody else. If you want a short life, be born a black man. 
Because only black men are not um, expected to live at the time to see 70 years of age. I hope you guys are getting this. These are huge differences. And here is where the devil, so now, and I'm, I'm, we're going to get deeper into this in a second. The devil leverages these facts, these realities, into not just realities, but then false perceptions. Because what the devil will convince you to think is, well, it's got to be somebody's fault that this is so bad. It must be those group of people. And then you blame a whole group of people for problems that sometimes can be solved right in your own neighborhood. So I'll give you some more stats here. This is um, Oten et al. reported death rates per 100,000 for people 35 to 54 years of age is 2.3 times higher for African-Americans than for whites. If you're just for the six risk factors that many people would say are why black people die sooner, smoking, high blood pressure, cholesterol, weight, alcohol, diabetes, it decreases from 2.3 to 1.9 times. So you say, well, it's because black people are poor. You, you adjust for income, it drops to 1.4 times. This leaves about a third of the difference completely unexplained. Right? So you, you don't even explain the difference. When poverty is controlled for, it leaves an excess of 38,000 deaths per year, or about 1.1 million years of life loss. This is old data, but just to make the point, that even wealthy black people, like famous rapper and actor Heavy D, I forget this guy's name, he was from, um, thinking of a movie called The Green Mile, um, Bernard, Neil Bernard Tyson was the head of um, Kaiser Permanente, very intelligent, wealthy guy, right? And still, money doesn't fix it, right? In fact, there's a study here from the New York Times, heart ills are higher in black doctors. So even well-educated, even with money, something else happens. And why is that? Ellen White has a book. If you've never read the book, The Southern Work, you should. The Southern work will blow your mind. Ellen White says things that Martin Luther King Jr. will not say for 60, 70 years after she said it. It is profound. And we're gonna, I'm going to highlight the work Ellen White and her son did. I'm actually going to, in one of the presentations, show you how Ellen White addressed the race issue. Let me say this. She was light years ahead of the rest of America. And she didn't just say she was going to help black people. She literally put her family's life in danger to do it. I mean, it, let me tell you something. People criticize Ellen White. The more you study her life and her writings, you realize why. Because she's antithetical to what Satan is doing in the world. And when you see it, you're going to be very proud because a lot of people try and you know, beat up our denomination and our prophet, but there's no, nobody else can claim some of the stuff that she actually did, not even what she said. So Richard Rothstein has a book, and he talks about how America was segregated. And this book is called The Color of Law. Highly recommend the book. If you've never read this book, um, I'll just briefly talk about it. But in The Color of Law, Richard Rothstein actually goes through and shows you America was actually a very um, uh, um, um, uh, um, homogenous nation. There wasn't a whole lot of segregation, right, except where it was legal. In much of the North and in the West, America was actually doing quite fine coming into the 1920s, 30s. Blacks and whites lived in the same neighborhoods. The kids played together. We, ne we never get that history. America actually went backwards when th the color of law, and he describes how governments and housing developers actually created what they call redlining and created neighborhoods and spaces that only certain people could live in and then devalued the neighborhoods and spaces black people were left in permanently taking away generational wealth. Very powerful book. If you have not read the book, you read it. You, I, you, I pulled over and wept because I said, what America would have been if this didn't happen? This is not talking about Jim Crow. This is, this is California. This is Connecticut. This is um, Levittown in New York on Long Island. I mean, these are, you know, this is not, it wasn't the deep south. This was all of America. So the question then comes up, and this is, as an example, we use black people. Why do black people then die sicker and sooner than every other body else, right? Why, why, why does that happen? And the answer is one word. It's stress. Now, as an Adventist, I can tell you that the Adventist health message and the Adventist message in general is an anti-stress, anti-inflammatory message. Did you know that? When you remove the thing, especially the unclean foods, Shell food, the lobster, otherwise it's not to eat cheese. You take all that stuff out of your diet, you turn down inflammation in the body, and you will live longer. Very powerful, right? Studies show, and I should have put some slides in there on this, but the studies show black people who go to church live on average 14 years longer than black people who don't. 
staggering number. What we have found is that even when you look, you look at, black, at, at black Adventists, and Dr. Susanna Montgomery and I, um, we worked with the uh, Adventist Health Study when I was at Loma Linda, but Dr. Susanna Montgomery, she actually published a paper. And what she showed from the data is that if all black Americans followed the Adventist lifestyle, church, Sabbath, food, sunshine, water, everything, you could, all of the health disparities I just described to you would disappear. Isn't that powerful? It's not, no pill, no chemotherapy, no nothing, no gene therapy. The Adventist lifestyle. This is why the Blue Zones is such a big deal, right? That they go out to Loma Linda and they found these things. This is why it's such a big deal. Because all of America is getting sicker and sicker and sicker, but it is one little group that doesn't. If you hear me talk about this, you, I mentioned Bill Maher's show um, on HBO, and when he had um, the guy who wrote the book, The Blue Zones, um, Dan Grutner, uh, when he was on the show, and he said, it, Bill Maher said, hey, one of the things that shocked me is, of all of the five blue zones in the world, you know, Greece and, and Japan and Costa Rica, he said, well, how is there one in North America? And he said, and it's just 10, it's just down to 10 freeway, like an hour from here, or 40 minutes from here. He said, they're Seventh-day Adventists. Bill Maher, as you all know, is, the, is, a, is, a, is a screaming atheist, hates God in church. He throws down his stuff, I quit. You know the testimony that night on that show? Dan Butner even begins to quote the Bible, Genesis 1.29. He says they do this because, and he quotes scripture on Bill Maher's evil show. Let me tell you something. Church, you're on the winning side. Amen. You're on the right side. The science overwhelmingly supports that this is the truth. And it is unique to Seventh-day Adventists. So stress, you can define stress as a condition or feeling experienced when a person perceives that demands exceed the personal and social resources the individual is able to mobilize. What makes you stressed is not just the reality of what's going on. It's what you perceive is going on. You get that? It's not just what actually is happening, it's what you perceive is happening. This is why living in a society so bent on race becomes so dangerous. Because all of a sudden, if you're black or brown or you're a woman or you're gay, all of a sudden everything comes back to that. So if someone isn't nice to me when I go to the grocery store, in the context of America, I may say, that lady doesn't like me because I'm black. And my blood pressure shoots up. My pupils dilate. Heart race increases, right? Blood is shunted away from my digestive tract to my big muscles, right? I'm in a fight or flight mode because I think maybe she's a racist. If you stand there long enough and the next person comes white and she's just as mean to them. You get my point? And so what happens is, one, the reality of what I'm showing you creates a perception and a sensitivity that the devil can now use to make people sick. Make them sensitive. Make them continuously angry. So it's not that the reality isn't reality. The reality is reality. America has the history it has. You can't just erase the history. But you can then pile on to it. And now people become sick because this is their life's focus. I have friends that this is all that matters. One dude I argued with for like three months about the color of Jesus. He was trying to convince me Jesus is black. I said, I don't understand. First of all, why would it even matter? So if he shows up and he's Asian, what you going to do? <laughs> what are you going to do? You're going to be like, okay, forget it. I don't want to see the God anymore. Like, I'll stay down here with the rest of them. Like, does it make sense? It doesn't make sense. There's a reason there's no pictures of Jesus. The reason that the Old Testament prophets is that when we see him, Right? There would be, be nothing that would, we'd be, we would desire of him. It wasn't his physical appearance that drew people to Christ. But if the, what happens is being a woman becomes the only thing that matters. Everything is about me being a woman. Everything is about me being a black man. And right, what happens to me? And, and then all of a sudden, I've, if that's all that matters to me, I've got to attack the group who attacks me. So now I'm against the patriarchy. I'm against the man. I'm against the system. I'm against America. Right? All of a sudden, I turn on all of these institutions because what matters is I'm a victim and they're an oppressor. 
And this is what is being taught in our schools. This is the, this is the, this is the, the, the theme. Now, we're going to talk about the civil rights movement. You know the civil rights movement? That was not the issue at all. The civil rights movement was a Christian movement, and their, their goal wasn't to make victims and oppressors. It was simply to say, listen, just level the playing field for us and let character decide. And it worked. It was a powerful movement. But I'm going to show you that, that that's changed completely. You're going to, that's some shocking stuff when you start to look at what has happened to what was the, the civil rights movement. So stress equals demands minus resources. If you have a cubicle you work in, I suggest you put this equation up on it. I should have copyrighted this thing or something, but I didn't. And I'm sure somebody somewhere is going to make money off it someday. I hope they pay tithe. Um, <laughs> but stress equals demands minus resources. Put this up in your cubicle, put it on your desk. Why? You've got to remember at all times, I'm doing a little aside here, when you're stressed out, you have two options. You can decrease the demand or increase the resources. The world, and this is why people are so sick, this is why people are so the world offers false resources. In the name of social justice, the prophetic fulfillment, repeating history, is the legalization of marijuana. I'm going to say it again. It's very controversial. It is one of the singular worst things that has happened in America in the last 50 years. The mass legalization of marijuana across the country. And every week, if you're paying attention, more and more scientific literature is coming out saying, this stuff is bad for you. It causes dementia. It causes heart attacks. It messes up the lungs. It causes psychosis. It increases criminality. It decreases fertility. I mean, it is bad. But what they've told you is, little smoke of weed, little chew on some edibles, and your stress levels will come down. You'll feel better. You can treat your anxiety. I have patients, I, you know, they're paranoid, looking over their shoulder, rubbing their skin. I, I, I got to do the marijuana because, it, you know, it helps me with my anxiety. Child, you couldn't be no more anxious than you are right now. You look like you're going to leave your skin in the room and run. Right? But that's what happens. I hope you're getting it. We, so... The devil offers these false resources. Alcohol. Watch this. Sexual sin. And I don't, that's not, this, that's not this, these, these seminars, but I'm going to tell you, one of the most damaging, destructive, dangerous things happening in the world is this idea around sex, free sex, the apps. And we are watching as the, every year, you know what's funny? I heard Neil Nedley say this. In the, you know, in the 1980s when AIDS came out, they said, listen, if we just give out enough condoms and teach people to be free sexual beings, masturbate, watch pornography, all of the sexual health in this country will improve. You know what happened when we did that? You, you can get all the condoms free. You, you can't get a stick of bubble gum free, but you can get condoms free all over the place. Sexually transmitted infection rates every year over year, I have the graphs and some other talk, it go up every year, even during the pandemic. Even when he was supposed to be social distancing, these people were not listening to what Fauci said and clearly were not distancing because they came running into the clinic with chlamydia and gonorrhea. You did not stay six feet apart. Right? But social justice, when we're talking about the French Revolution, how society has changed, they want to give you those false resources. But church, you have the real resources. My father is rich in houses and land. Right? Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He says, take my yoke upon you. Why do you carry the world's weight and then try and deal with its pressures with the world's resources? The world's resources will kill you. Much of the, what you see in a lot of these statistics I'm showing you has to, goes back to the spiritual concept that people are trying to fill a God-sized hole in their heart with everything but God. So yeah, they're smoking weed and doing cocaine and all of this stuff because, they, as we're going to talk about later on, the, the world has duped them into thinking they have no purpose. So when you do this, you get the fight or flight thing, um, and it's horrible. The problem is, if you really get to a place where you think the whole world is against you, you really think that the whole of America is against you, every police officer in the world is against you, everybody's against you, guess what happens? You stay in this state. 
I hope you get what I'm saying. Once you believe that you are a perpetual victim and there's no hope of ever coming out of it, you stay in a place of fight or flight forever. And why then are particularly black people live short a lot? Part of the reason is they've been convinced to stay here. No, there's a lot of other, there's a lot of things, a lot of other stressors, financial stressors, but all that, you, if, you, if you don't let go of that, and that's a t- let me tell you something, as a black American, that is a tough thing to let go of. It is hard to let go of it, and I'll talk more about that next one. So racism is one of the reasons that it becomes so t- terrible. Um, when you look at some of the um, victims of, of death at the hands of police, this is one of the reasons why so many people have galvanized around this movement. There's some really good books on this. If you talk to me after, I can, t- I can tell you some really good books that say a side of this stuff that I've never seen, but very powerful. And so you see this now. People are afraid of the police. They're afraid of... Right? But this stress, this, this is um, an article on racism's hidden toll. Um, and so this report, NBC News, right? Black people are still killed by police at a higher rate than other groups. But here, look at this. No one ever really says this part, though. That, in fact, white people are almost twice as likely in this same time period to have been killed by the police as a black person. Interesting, right? Now, proportionately, they're right. But I can tell you, these these things happen to everyone, right? Now, the, the ratio, obviously, is a lot higher. And that is important because that does need to be fixed. But part of that is fixed if you change neighborhoods so that the neighborhoods themselves are safer neighborhoods. And that's not going to happen if you just remove the police. In fact, the opposite happened in Portland. There's a prime city. When they did that during the riots, it didn't get better, did it? It actually got worse. This is another place where the church can actually get involved. Our church, when I was in California, worked very closely. I was on the city, I was in the city uh, of Pasadena. I worked for the city and um, um, our, the other pastor at the church at Altadena was in the military. And we would literally, once a year, have the police come in, and we would actually honor certain police officers. We, we, the police came to the, cler- the clergy meetings of all the clergy. We engaged the police. We talked with the police. We worked with the police. Because what had infested that neighborhood was a beef between the Bloods and the Crips. Really, what had terrorized that neighborhood for decades was that Altadena was Crips, Pasadena was Bloods, and they were war. Our church was neutral ground for the two sides. It was the one place the Bloods and Crips would come and play basketball together. And so we, we tried to work with the police. But this is where, this is why, again, we've got to reframe how we do what we do and think a little bit differently. But in truth, what actually is the biggest killer is homicide. Homicide is the pandemic's biggest killer of young black men. So while the riots were going, all that was going on, this is the real truth. And again, it's a spiritual issue. And unless you address it, and so a lot of people say as well, don't worry about it. Um, You know, this isn't as important as the police. But when I was growing up, this is what I was afraid of. When I would move through certain neighborhoods, it was this that I was afraid of. How does the church address violence in the neighborhoods? How do we move in and correct this? This is tough. This takes after-school programs. This takes tutoring young men. This takes mentoring people in the, in the cities. This is why the churches actually need to come together to work together against these things. Because it won't happen if we're fragmented, working separately, trying to solve problems. So once you believe, you know, and so these things, I won't go into these, but it shows you that, you know, if, if you think you've been a victim of racism, um, just, just, the, just the real or perceived, you have a 48% more likely to develop breast cancer. Another study of African-American women found that report, those that reported chronic emotional stress due to their experience of racism, real or perceived, had more blocked coronary arteries or carotid arteries. Um, they had worse uh, uh, coronary artery calcium scores. Um, and this study found, showed that at the same age, black women were seven and a half years older. There was accelerated aging because of the experience of, of racism, real or perceived. And that's why I say real or perceived, because it is real and it can at times be perceived. And so you can't see the pictures of the telomeres back there, but the telomeres are what matter. Now, when I was in Australia, they took me to visit one of the health departments, and I found this interesting. Australia um, 
had a whole thing for the Aboriginal people, and this is the Australian Public Health Department, racism makes me sick. And they have the two things here. Um, and so what matters is this. Health equals resiliency divided by stress. The role of the church is to add resiliency. Amen? All right, I know we hit our break time. So I'm going to stop. We're going to take a 10-minute break, I guess. Um, a lot more to cover. Um, just getting warmed up. It's a lot of twists and turns. So I'll see you guys back in 10 minutes. This message was recorded in partnership with Audio Burst, the GYC conference, but if not, in Portland, Oregon. GYC is a supportive ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and seeks to challenge and inspire young people to take sacrificial initiative for Christ and to see Jesus finish the work in this generation. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.